and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. There are a lot of voices available to us in government or on cable news and social media, but they're not all equally reliable. There is one voice that is always reliable. Listen to him. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series Miracles of Jesus with this sermon entitled Christ, Our Glorious Authority, which covers Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. So we're going to continue now. We're going to finish out this series that we've been in, The Miracles of Jesus. Uh, Before we do that, um, I want to give you just a few thoughts to consider, just a family moment here as we think about where we're headed as a church. What is, what is our vision as we think about, gosh, what are we to be doing during this time? And uh, here's what I would say to you. Our vision is exactly the same. We haven't shifted one bit in what we feel God is calling us to be and where we're to go. Uh, if you'll remember our vision statement, what we say often is that we long to see individuals, families, greater Atlanta, and the world come into a life-transforming encounter with the kingdom of God. That's who we are. That's what God has called us to be. And even in a time like this, where we are in our homes, uh, where we're in this social distancing world that we're in now, um, there's still great opportunity to live out that vision, to be creative about what would it look like for us, for you and for me, our families, uh, to be pursuing others in unique ways, in different ways than maybe we have before. Maybe we're having phone calls that we normally wouldn't have. Maybe we're uh, sending texts that we normally wouldn't send to people that perhaps we haven't talked to in quite a while. Whatever it may look like for you, this vision of seeing God's kingdom come to bear and to bring life transformation to people who are desperately in need of Jesus. That's still what we're aiming for. That's still who we are. And so I would encourage you uh, to be prayerful. I hope you are being prayerful about, God, how would you want to accomplish the vision of your church in and through me, even in these days? What does that look like for me? Um, How does it look for me to be on mission even in this bizarre time that we're in right now? Let the Lord meet with you on that front and see where he might lead you. Uh, I would also say this, our posture is the same. Our vision is the same. Uh, Our posture is the same, if not even more, which is this posture of radical dependence. Uh, I hope you're like me and that I am feeling this sense of needing to be radically dependent upon the Lord more than ever right now. My prayers each day are typically started and and then just all throughout my prayers, I keep saying, oh God, I need you. Would you give me your strength? Would you give me your power? I am depending upon you and you alone. And think of this, think of the grace of God that is at work right now in this pandemic to help believers, those who follow Jesus, to realize in a fresh way how much we need him. What a blessing that that would be part of what he's doing here. But then also think about the number of people, and I'm convinced of this, I'm convinced that the number of people that are going to come out of this, whenever, whenever it all kind of settles, they're going to come out of this hurting. And that's not a good thing. We don't want that. That's not something we long for. However, they're going to be searching. They're going to be looking. They're going to be asking questions. They're going to be saying, oh, I, I, I'm looking and longing for something because all this has been stripped away. 
I'm hurting financially. I'm hurting emotionally. I'm hurting physically. I'm hurting spiritually. And I'm looking. And that's where we, that's where we come in. The church is to be the church in powerful and strong ways. And I think I'm convinced that the church is actually going to be stronger when it's all said and done because we get to be the lighthouse to the world, to the dark world around us that is experiencing that when all is stripped away, where do I turn? Where do I go? And our message of hope, the message of the gospel is that there is one. There is Jesus who meets our needs in ways that we can only imagine. And so we get to be the church in a, in a time like this. And what a blessing, what a joy. Would you continue meeting as groups as, as well? That's the last thing I wanna encourage you with. Don't forsake meeting together, even in this format, that you would be FaceTiming with your discipleship group, that you'd be texting, calling with your connect groups. However we can come around each other, we need each other in significant ways. Even if it's digitally, even if it's through technology, may we come around each other in strong and powerful ways during this time. So let me pray for us in that direction, and then we'll get into the sermon today. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your goodness that is so evident even in times of trial and struggle and fear and worry. Lord, in so many ways, we see even more your goodness in times like these. And Father, if we're not seeing that, would you be so kind as to open our eyes to see what we need to see during this time in, in who you are and all that you are for us in Jesus, O oh Lord. Father, we give this time to you this morning and we ask that as we open your word yet again, that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word, that you would uh, just simply use me as your mouthpiece. And as we pray often, Lord, I pray that uh, whatever comes out of my mouth that is not of you, may it be forgotten quickly. But what is of you, may it press deep into our hearts. Would you change us? Would you shape us into your image? Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And Father, would you do all of it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned, we're in the final week of this series, this five-week series, Miracles of Jesus. And as we've walked through various miracles, my prayer and hope has been that you have been impacted greatly by God's Word and by who Jesus is and all that's being revealed to us about Jesus as the great authority, authority over creation, authority over kingdoms, authority over blindness, authority over all things. And where we're looking this morning is that uh, Jesus is our glorious authority. He is the glorious one. He is the one who is majestic in ways that we can only fathom and imagine that one day, one day will be true. If you're a follower of Christ, we'll get to behold him in all of his glory. So we're going to look at a miracle this morning that may not feel like a miracle in the traditional sense. It's not necessarily one where, uh, where Jesus is performing a, a healing or an exorcism or whatever it may be that we've looked at so far. Uh, what we're looking at this morning is is we're looking at the transfiguration, something that you're, if you've been in or around church for any length of time, you're probably familiar with, and maybe you don't consider it necessarily a miracle because it doesn't, as I said, feel like one traditionally, so to speak. But it is. It's a moment of miraculous re revelation for Peter, James, and John, and then through the scriptures as they've recorded for us, even for us, to get a glimpse of who Jesus is. One of the, one of the favorite shows in my home is Fixer Upper. 
Uh, we were devastated when we found out that it was going to be discontinued after 2017 season, but, uh, but all the reruns, we still watch them. We have them recorded on our DVR, and, and we love Chip and Joanna. They're heroes in our home. Uh, we, we, we have shaped our home in their style, as like most white Americans. Anyway, um, <laughs> can I say that? Is that okay? Okay. So here's one of the things that happens on most every show, uh, and, and it's almost predictable, but we always go, oh, wow, that's cool. So they go into these homes, sometimes dilapidated homes, but a lot of times just older homes that have been de decorated in decades past. And what will begin to happen is you'll see something happen in two places, either on the floors or on the walls. And what will happen is they begin to uh, do the demolition and the renovation. They'll, on the floor, they'll begin to pull back that old 1960s or 70s or 80s carpet. And what they'll see as they begin to pull it back is they'll, they'll have this moment of going, wow, there's beautiful hardwoods under here. Why would you ever put carpet over this? Uh, it's gorgeous, this aged deep, rich hardwoods that were there originally in the home or on the walls. They'll begin to peel back the wallpaper or take down the sheetrock or, or dismantle the wood paneling. And as they get behind that, what do you see? You see the fad of the past decade for us, shiplap. You see shiplap and they go crazy. Oh, there's shiplap. Joanna loves shiplap. And uh, we have it in our home because of course we do. We love fixer upper. But you see the shiplap and it's beautiful. It's this old wood. And, uh, and you go, why would you ever cover this up? And what you begin to see is this. You begin to see that there was something very ordinary, not that captivating, covering up something glorious, veiling something to the human eye that had been covered up in decades past. You know, when you look at the scriptures and when you look at Jesus, the scriptures actually show us and even tell us many times over uh, that Jesus during his time on earth was in a lot of ways very ordinary. He was, he was nothing in human form to behold or to be enamored with. The scriptures actually tell us this. And by the way, let me pause right here and just say to the kids, kids, I'm gonna be actually refer, uh, referencing a lot of scripture today. And so I want you to play a game at home. I want you to have a pen and paper if you don't already. And I want you to write down Every time you see or hear me reference a passage of scripture, or a verse of scripture, because there's going to be a lot today, and I want you to see if you can get all of them down. Just even the reference, you don't have to write the whole verse down, but just make a note of, okay, he just went there and he just went there. And then you can look them up later and read them on your own. And then you can show your parents, hey, I think, did I get all the ones that Jeff mentioned? And then I'll leave it up to your parents to give you whatever reward they want to give you if you were able to stay with me and write all those passages down. But here's the first one. The first one is what the scriptures tell us actually all the way back in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52, it's predicting who this Messiah is going to be, Jesus. And it says this, it says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And so Jesus shows up and he fits that mold. You know, in a lot of ways, he was this just kind of run of the mill, mill carpenter uh, from a forgotten little town in northern Israel, Nazareth. And if you were to brush shoulders with Jesus, uh, you would probably think this is a pretty ordinary guy. Philippians 2, the apostle Paul tells us that he kind of gives us a little bit of a, a look behind the curtain of what happened before Jesus 
came to earth, when he was in eternity past with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, it says that he uh, emptied himself. And then it goes on to say this in verse seven of Philippians chapter two, it says that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So what does this mean? It can be a little confusing. Does it mean that he, that he stripped himself of his divinity? And I would say, no, absolutely not. That, that he, uh, he, is, he is the God man. Um, one, we say this often, but 100% God, 100% man. And so emptying himself, and it said, even before that, it said that he didn't uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. That's the full verse. So what does that mean? Well, I would say it means this. He didn't become less divine in his human form, but his divinity at some level was veiled in his humanity, uh, that we didn't see it. And we're going to continue where Caleb took us last week, this theme of seeing. Are we seeing? That's going to continue in where we're going this week, but we don't see his divinity as clearly. But then this story comes along, this transfiguration, and just for a moment, just for a moment, Jesus reveals his glory. He shows us his majesty. And we get to glance at it. And in glancing at it through the scriptures, we also are compelled to begin to look forward to that day when we won't see it in part, we won't see it just at a glance, but we will see it and stare at it for all of eternity. And we will behold the glory and the majesty of the glorious one, Jesus. And so let's look at this passage in the book of Mark, chapter 9. I'll begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read it in parts and stop along the way as I like to do and give commentary and teach along the way. It says this, verse 1, it says, He said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, what does that mean? We'll get to that. Verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. This account is also in Matthew and in Luke. And Matthew shed some light here to say that uh, what that meant was it says that his face shone like the sun. Imagine that that he was transfigured before them, that he began to, to shine like the sun so much so, and this was verse three here in Mark, that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Which is such a, I think that's such a funny phrase for Mark. It's as if Peter, as Peter is kind of giving this account to Mark for Mark to write down, it's as if they're struggling to figure out how do we even word how bright Jesus is here that even his clothes, because of the glory that's being manifesting, manifested, are shining brighter than you could bleach them. I don't know how else to say it, right? That's kind of what Mark's struggling with right here. It's like, how do you even begin to describe what happened in the radiance that was coming forth and the glory that was coming forth from Jesus? Then verse four, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, Luke helps us understand here what they were talking about. Luke gives us the, the further insight that they were talking about with Jesus. They were talking about Jesus's departure. 
Okay, think about this. What, what must have that conversation been like? If you were Peter, James, and John, and you're, you're witnessing all of this, and you begin to overhear your eavesdropping in on a conversation with Moses, who's the patriarch of the past, who represents the law. He's the mediator, if you will, whom God through him gave the law to his people to reveal the heart of God, the standard of God. And then you have Elijah, who is the representative of all the prophets, one of the greatest prophets. And they're standing here in their, in their state in heaven as they are with the Lord, talking to Jesus. And listen to this, even helping Jesus embrace the mission for which he came. Hey, this is, remember, this is what you came for. Because in this moment, can you imagine the temptation for Jesus? He's revealing his glory and he's with uh, those who have gone before him in the presence of the Father. How tempting must it have been for him to just say, I'm just gonna stay here. This is the reality that I've known for all of eternity past I don't want to embrace what I came for. And this is what he wrestled with in the garden with the father. Uh, if there be any other way, oh God, but your will be done. And they're talking with him about his departure and they're in, no doubt encouraging him, encouraging him. This is what you came for. Uh, what must it have been like for Peter, James, and John? The scriptures tell us that they were absolutely terrified. Can you, can you imagine? I would be too. Totally terrified. Um, they, they get to look upon this profound and beautiful occurrence and they're indelibly changed by it. They're marked by it. They would write about it later. John, in John chapter one, as he's writing his gospel account, in verse 14, he says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I think that's, that's him talking about this right here. He's talking about, hey, I've seen his glory. We, we were there. Uh, James and, and uh, Peter were with me. I, we saw his glory, the only one from the father. Peter would later write about it. In the second epistle of Peter, verses, uh, chapter one, verses 16 to 17, he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, and we're going to read this in a moment. This is, this is God, the majestic glory, the Father, saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, this is Peter saying, look, we saw it. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You can imagine that Peter, uh, people are trying to probably say, hey, did you make this up? Did you and, and James and John, did y'all really see this? And he's saying, look, I was there. I saw it. We were eyewitnesses. We heard the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. They saw it and they were forever changed by it. But I want to bring something up. Why would this impact them so much? Not only because of what they're seeing that would obviously be life transforming, but think about what happened just before this again. Caleb talked about it last week, but I want to hit on it again. Right before this happens, Jesus predicts his, his, uh, his death, his resurrection. He says to them, hey, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm gonna, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. 
And this is after Peter had confessed you are the Christ, but they didn't get what the Christ had to go through. And so God, uh, Jesus says to them, hey, this is what's going to happen. And then just so that they understand, hey, by the way, the life that I'm calling you into is a life of suffering as well. Because he says in chapter 8, verse 34, he says, if anyone, this is right after he's told them that he's going to be killed and, and resurrected. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and also take up his cross, just like I'm going to take up his cross and follow me. And then he goes on to explain even further what that means. And then, he, and then he says this in verse one that I read a moment ago. I say to you, there will be some standing here who will not taste death until the kingdom of God comes in power. Here's what I think is happening. I think it's at this juncture that the disciples, the 12, are going, oh, what have we gotten ourselves into? We thought the Messiah was coming to deliver us militarily and politically to bring back the glory of the kingdom of Israel as we knew under David and Solomon. He's talking about dying, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. And that there's this kingdom coming, that's coming in power that some of us will actually see death. What, what, what is he talking about? Don't you know there was confusion, great confusion. There was wondering, uh, are we, uh, should we be doing this? And it's in the midst of this, these doubts and these concerns and these fears that Jesus does this on the heels of this. It's six days later. So for six days, they're pondering, what is this that Jesus has called us into? And they are so perplexed. And then he is so gracious to take his three, his best, his, his best friends, his three inner circle, to take them up on this high mountain and to reveal to them to basically say, look, I want you to see just a glimpse of what's to come. I want you to be encouraged that there is a glory to come that you will behold and not only will you behold it, you will partake in it. In this life of denying self, in this life of embracing the cross with Jesus, in this life of self-sacrifice, in this life of following Jesus in a way that means dying to all the things that I think bring life so that I may find it in Jesus and Jesus alone, there's glory and you may not experience that glory now. You may not see that glory now, but let me give you a glimpse of my glory on high so that you will persevere, so that you will know what is to come. And you know, throughout scripture, significant things happen on a mountain. Specifically with Moses and Elijah, Moses had significant encounters with the glory of God on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, which that's the same place. They just have two different names for it. The burning bush in Exodus 3. Kids, did you catch that one? Exodus 3, write that one down. Mount Horeb, that's where that happened. It happened on Mount Horeb where the burning bush account happened with where God displays his glory to Moses. And then, of course, the Ten Commandments when he's up on high on Mount Sinai on the same mountain, Exodus 19 and 20. Moses experiences the glory of God even just in such a little way there that he comes down off the mountain and he's glowing because he's been in the presence of God. So much so that he has to veil the glory of God that is shining, reflecting off of his face. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 had a significant encounter with the glory of God as well as God, after he had shown himself to be the powerful God that he is uh, in chapter 18, when he rains down fire on the gods of Baal. And then he presents himself to 
to Elijah in glory as Elijah, even in, after seeing what he saw, was doubting. And God speaks to him in a low whisper in the midst of his glory to assure his prophet, I am with you and I am God. These happened on high mountains. Moses representing the law, as I said, Elijah representing the prophet. So here we are on another high mountain with those two here representing what they do. And yet there's a different type of glory that's now being manifested on this high mountain. And yes, Moses had an incredible experience where he comes down off the mountain reflecting the glory of God. But what we're seeing here in this transfiguration is not just a reflection of the glory of God. It is the very eminence of the glory of God. It's not a reflection. It's the source of glory. Jesus himself, he is the radiance, as Hebrews says it in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So not only are the disciples being encouraged and affirmed and even terrified in the midst of this glory, but Jesus himself is being assured. He's being encouraged not only by Elijah and Moses, but by the Father himself. You are my glorious one. You're the one whom I have sent. And you are the one who will reign in glory forever and ever. I want to read the rest of the passage and give you a few comments as we, as we come to a close here in a few minutes. Listen to what it says, verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I love this. I love this. I love this. Peter is my boy. He, like, I struggle with talking when I shouldn't. I struggle with being over talking, right? Over talkative. That's Peter all throughout the scriptures. It's like, brother, shut up. You're in the presence of glory. Just take it in. But he doesn't know what to say. He, he's just like, I, this, is awesome. this is awesome. I don't know what to do. So let's build some tents. Let's make it, let's just make it continue uh, as if a tent could hold the glory that he's seeing before him. Now in his defense, in his defense, he knows the scriptures and he knows Zechariah 14 talks about that when the messianic kingdom comes, that it'll come in a way that'll be like this perpetual celebration of the, ta- uh, of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which is a tent where they would set up these tents. And so in his defense, he's probably thinking, okay, this is it. It's happening. Let's build tents. This is great. But he should have just been quiet, been still, be, be still and know I am in the presence of glory. But man, I, I resonate with Peter so much. And I resonate with when I don't know what to say, often I just talk. (laughs) Maybe that's you. And so Peter is flawed like the rest of us. But Jesus was so tender with him, he didn't rebuke him. He just continued to be with him in glory. And Peter realizes, I should probably be quiet. Because then the Father speaks. And the Father says, In verse seven, it says, and a cloud overshadowed them. Again, how often is God presenting himself in the Old Testament in the form of a cloud? And so here they are again, they're enveloped in this cloud. And he says this, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Have you noticed in the book of Mark, and it happens in Matthew and Luke too, but I love the way Mark does it. You go back to chapter one, verse 11, when Jesus is baptized, 
look what happens. God shows up, the father shows up and he speaks and he says almost the same exact thing. In fact, as Matthew records it, it is the same exact thing. He says in verse one, verse 11, uh, chapter one, verse 11 of Mark at Jesus' baptism, he says, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. So here we are at the transfiguration. He's saying the same thing. Matthew includes that phrase with you. I am well pleased. And then as the book comes to a close, as Jesus is being crucified, there's one more affirmation that this truly is the Son of God, but it doesn't come from the Father, and it doesn't even come from a disciple. It comes from this pagan, Gentile, Roman centurion who didn't even know who Jesus was, but as he watches Jesus breathe his last on the cross and cry out, it is finished. This is what the centurion says recorded for us in Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the son of God. The world begins in in little bitty pieces to recognize what the father has been proclaiming all along. People are beginning to see. As Caleb said last week, it's blurry. It's in part. But even unexpected ones, the ones you wouldn't expect to see, they're beginning to see. To behold the glory of Jesus. It says that they came, verse 9, they came uh, off the mountain And he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They are still so confused. They still don't get it. What is this rising from the dead he keeps talking about? And they asked him, why why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They're still trying to figure this whole thing out. And he says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, yeah, remember the scriptures. You remember that Elijah's got to come first, but do you also remember that the scriptures predicted that I would suffer, that I would be rejected? Don't just take part of scripture and remember it. Take all of scripture. Remember what's got to be true first. He says, I tell you, verse 18 or verse 13, I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And Luke again tells us that, or maybe it was Matthew, one of them, you can look it up. I can't remember which one. Tells us that what they realized at that point is that he was talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Elijah who came to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus' mission, don't mistake this, Jesus' mission was Jerusalem. Jesus' mission was the cross. Jesus' mission was resurrection. He came to seek and to save the lost. That before we would behold him in his glory, fully revealed to us, that first and foremost, we would see him and embrace him as the lamb of God slain on our behalf for the sins of the world, pouring out his blood for you and me. He says to them, hey, don't talk about what you've seen here. Don't talk about it until I've accomplished my mission, until this is finished. Three things I want to give you as we, as we come to a close. First one is this. The transfiguration is pointing us towards something beyond the cross. It's pointing us to something even beyond Christ's resurrection. 
It's pointing us to the glorious one whom we will behold on that day. It's pointing us to our own resurrection. The transfiguration is a miracle in that Jesus is just peeling back the carpet just a little bit to help us see what's underneath the glorious one who's behind the ordinary. Behind the carpenter is a king. One whom we will behold in all of his glory one day that keeps us persevering even now, even as we embrace this life of suffering and sadness and sorrow and self-denial, we know that there's a glory to come. We know that there's a resurrection to come, not because of our power, but because of his, not because we conquer the grave, but because he conquered the grave. And that's not because of our morality or our goodness to be able to win that for ourselves, but because he won it for us. And our faith is in him. Our hope is in him. Our trust is in him. Our glory is him, not anything of us. And there's a day coming when he will reveal that glory in full and we will behold the glorious one and we will be transformed and all things will be made new and we will share. This is crazy. We will share in his glory in his majesty. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look to the glorious one. I want you to see him continuing this theme of, am I seeing him? Oh God, show me your glory should be our prayer. That through all of the chaos and the, 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 the madness of this world, oh God, would you give me eyes of faith? to see and behold, even as Peter, James, and John did that day, would you give me glimpses of your glory through spiritual eyes to see and behold who you are, that I may be encouraged to continue in this walk of faith. And then I want you to do this. I want you to listen, listen to the glorious one. Did you, I haven't read it yet on purpose. I skipped it on purpose, but did you catch what the father said? The father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. What are you tuning your ears to even in this season? What, are you, what or who are you most listening to? Are you looking at inward and, and listening to yourself and all the ways in which we doubt and all the ways the enemy feeds us lies? Are we looking to news outlets? Are we looking, what are we looking to? It's so easy. And of course, there's good things that we need to be listening to that are part of this world. But are we first and foremost attuned to the voice of our good shepherd? And Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Do you know the shepherd's voice? Are you listening to his voice? Are you seeking time with him? And saying, oh God, would you speak? Oh Jesus, speak to me, tender shepherd. Drown out all the noise, oh Jesus, speak. We want to listen to Jesus. We want to look to Jesus. And we want to look to that day when his glory will be in full. And we will participate and share and behold his majesty. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that the scriptures give us of what is to come. Lord, we, we look forward to that day. And as we do, would you give us faith? 
Would you give us spiritual eyes to see and look to you, O Jesus, the glorious one, the majestic one? And would you give us ears to hear and to listen to your voice, O Jesus, our good shepherd? We give ourselves to you. We ask, we ask, O Lord, to do with us what you will. Make us into your image, we pray, for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. And I've seen the beauty of the mountains And I've gazed upon the boundless seas And I've counted stars inside the heavens But it can't compare to majesty No, it can't to majesty What can compare to the king of brilliant lights to the giver of all life there is nothing What can compare to the Would you stand and let's sing this together? I've watched the glory. And I've watched the glory of the sun rise. And I felt the coolness of the night. And I've heard the mighty rushing waters, but it can't compare to majesty. King of Britain. 
Amen. Amen. That was, that was a great way to kind of come and, and bring this worship time together to a close. Um, man, I think we can sit and reflect on that uh, for some time. And I invite you at, at home, think through and reflect on what we heard. You know, there was something, Jeff, that you said at the very end that just really struck a chord with me. You said, what am I tuning my ears to? And, um, you know, I, I guess a lot of us these days, we don't really wrestle with this idea of kind of trying to dial in, yeah. right? We, we can just punch in a number now and we can listen on the radio or punch in on Spotify to the exact song that we want to hear. But back in the day, you have to kind of dial the, the, the radio station in. And, um, and if, if you're off just by a little bit, you're hearing a lot of fuzz. Mm. But even then, I'm thinking about this. Um, there are a lot of things I'm listening to very clearly. That's not the word yeah. of God. Yeah. You know, I, I've been saying at home to my, to my 10 year old, I say this to my wife. I say this to the people that I interact with, check your source. Hmm. You know, we're, we're hearing things, we're reading things, we're watching things. What is the source? And how often am I even saying that? Are we saying that about scripture, are we going back to the ultimate source and authority that is Jesus Christ? He himself is the word. Yeah. And that's a, a good thing, a deep thing to, to be reflecting on. And so I encourage you, challenge you, families, do that over lunch, over dinner, throughout this day, throughout this next week. Think, what am I tuning into? What am I listening to? I hope, I hope that we're going back to the greater thing, right? And that is Jesus Christ, the glorious authority. Would you receive this benediction? And if you're still standing, great. If you're not standing, stand right back on up. Receive this benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says this, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, would he this week comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Lord's Day. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.